Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Even with this warm weather, there's going to be some great metro and mountain ice fishing. We'll cover that a little later in the show. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, big game allocations. Always oh, scheduled. We move that to next week. We've got a lot going on in the show, though. One of the things before we start the show, though, I want to really quick talk about, and that's today is Karen's birthday. My wife and partner, um, this woman, if you like what we do on this show, this woman has followed me all over the world. She's put up with being attacked by a muskox, sharks, alligators, crocodiles, been through a hurricane, had to deal with Mexican banditos, stingrays, rattlesnakes, small planes all over the outback. And yet she sits there, supports me, and through all our television and radio time. And she's about the best partner in both business and life a man could have, and certainly the best wife. So I want to wish her a really happy birthday, and I'm not dumb enough to tell you how old she is. All right, let's go to the phones. And joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Billy Atkinson. Good morning, Billy. Good morning, Terry. Good to have you on. Sorry we had a little bit of a mix-up there, but glad you're with us. No, no worries. Good to be here. Hey, now, we're going to talk about the Yampa River, which has been closed to fishing, and we'll get to the whys and everything in a little bit, but um, we've obviously had some water issues. Hopefully this winter will help. We'll see later on. We won't probably know till April. But there's a couple reasons that you want to close that stretch of the Yampa River that we're going to talk about, and you're going to get into more detail. But it isn't just to protect those fish for the immediate recreation that's a very special bunch of fish that you have there right it is correct and i will uh just have to clarify it um it's only a small portion of the yampa river the yampa river is not closed there's several sections that are still open as things warm up parts of the town stretch is even open and and fishing people are fishing in town what we're talking about today is just the six tenths of a mile section below, right below Stagecoach Reservoir that is on the state park property, just for clarification. Right, and that's a very popular um, stretch of river, especially in the winter. Now, you have to walk okay. in in the winter, and it's a little, you go through the snow to get to it, but it's just when you can fish that area, whether it's winter or summer, it is one of the most prolific fishing areas in the state, isn't it? It, you know, it really is. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's called Pleasant Valley. Um, Sarvis Creek State Wildlife is in the middle of, there's about seven miles of river between Stagecoach Reservoir and Lake Catamount. And about half of that is open to the public. And in, in the middle of that reach is, is our Sarvis Creek State Wildlife Area, which is very popular uh, for hiking, bird watching, waterfowl, um, and also during hunting season. So it's a very... The, the whole section there, Pleasant Valley, is just gorgeous. You get a lot of hikers, a lot of cross-country skiers in the wintertime. 
that go down there, and it's really it's a very high use corridor, and it is really a very special place. It really is, and and along with it being a special place, um, you and I kind of relived the story of how those fish got there and why they're so important yesterday, and. We'll probably right. have to do a shorter version because I think we we're on the yeah. phone for about an hour and a half. But right, but right. It's it, it, it's some really, um, if people remember back to whirling disease and how things were decimated, the fish in that river play an important part in the recovery from that, don't they? Correct. You know, we lost the. You know, back in the early two thousands. We began noticing declines in the rainbow trout fish. We had a very strong rainbow trout, like a lot of uh, river sections and rivers around Colorado and the West. You know, whirling disease definitely took a toll um, on this resource. And in the early 2000s, we began looking at uh, closely at this section from a research standpoint. Um, we, we noticed significant declines. And by 2006, this uh, population was, um, this population Virtually, virtually it was you know extirpated. We had low numbers of older senescent fish in the population, but no, we were missing four age classes, um, and so it was this population was winking out, and that coincided with the time that you know being such a high use area, it coincided coincided with a time when we were initiating research projects based on the German rainbow, what people might know as the Hofer strain rainbow. We're trying to refer to it more as a German rainbow, um, which has a, uh, exhibits a high-level resistance to the parasite. And this was one of our first experiments in the wild back in the, in the mid, you know, 2006, 2007. We had about, we stocked to, re, in order to rejuvenate this fishery, we stocked about 7,500 of these Hofer strain, with a hybrid, um, to kick, re, try and re-kickstart this population. And at that point, that was half of all the fish that were allocated for the entire West Slope. So, and since then, we've been doing a tremendous amount of work, habitat work, uh, stocking programs, different stocking regimes, and research to try and maintain and develop a brood stock of this, what's called the Hofer-Harrison strain. It's a hybrid um, where we can go in and take eggs to bring those eggs into the hatchery system and that's important because in the hatcheries are on spring water and the water is clean and when these trout developed the resistance to the parasite over in Europe we brought these eggs over in the early 2000s and they were over a century prior we shipped eggs to this facility in Europe back over a hundred years ago in the late 1800s early 1900s and they developed this high-level resistance to the parasite because the parasite is endemic. And it's important to have a population that it has a low level of continued exposure because that, that provides them the, the offspring in the population that inherit the highest um, resistance genetics. Then they are the ones that survive. And those are the ones that we want to – then we bring those into the hatchery to kind of refresh those resistant genetics in our hatchery broodstock. So because this area has, is now one of the highest proportions of rainbow trout relative to, say, brown trout densities, it's unique. And so we are conservative in protecting it and enhancing it, not only because it offers such a great recreational opportunity. You know, rainbow trout are seven or eight times more catchable than brown trout. And rainbow trout, are, you know, they're, they're known to be a fish for everybody. A lot of uh, early fisher 
uh, folks, you know, some of their, their first fish is either a bluegill, a sunfish, or a rainbow trout, you know, all, and that's all over the place. And so from the standpoint of catchability, from the standpoint of recruiting young anglers, and the fight and the joy, and, and it's just a, it's a good fish, good, and they're easier to manage in the hatchery system compared to other strains. And so very important that we are able to maintain this population to have an egg source um, and also for a recreational standpoint. No, you're absolutely right. And, and that stretch below the Stagecoach Dam is really quite unique because it's you have a dam at Stagecoach, and then you have a dam at Catamount, so that gives you a lot more control, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, when we look at, we did a four-year research study where we looked at um, the impact, and this is really the only place we were able to do this, of suppressing brown trout to see what response we had in the rainbow trout population. And we saw a tremendous increase in wild rainbow trout, fry, wild uh, young-of-the-year rainbows, uh, after following that, at the end of that research project, we don't have the ability, you know, in other river sections because this is functionally closed by the dams. And so we can, um, if we need to, and those fish get re- got relocated downriver um, in the AMPA below the, the dams, um, we have the ability to use that as a management tool. We don't in a lot of other bigger systems that are just too big and, you know, the competition from brown trout, predation competition, those fish filter in from upstream, downstream. It's really difficult. We've had a real struggle, you know, now even 20 years later, trying to get rainbow trout populations established in a lot of these river systems. So that's that a very unique situation that we have uh, between those two reservoirs. Now, and we're trying to protect those now, and we're not, you know, we, we're hopeful that, when flows get better, that, set, that section will open up to recreational fishing. But I hope people understand the importance of it. But now you're going to hear people. I want you to maybe give us an idea what happened to the flows, and that's the biggest reason you're closing it, and what needs to happen to reopen that. Right. And, that you know, it's flow-related, but it's also related to other impacts, like the wildfire you know, Morrison Creek is a, a pretty significant tributary to this section. It comes in um, a little less than a mile downstream of Stagecoach Dam. And we, um, we've been doing extensive monitoring in this reach now, especially during that research project we did for four years. And we have different monitoring sites that we repeat. And in, in, 2000, in, in, in 2021, there was a 4,000-acre wildfire up the, in the headwaters of Morrison Creek. And last summer, we saw, uh, you know, with the, we had an increased monsoon cycle compared to the past uh, quite a few years. And so with those, those rain events on that fire scar, we had a tremendous amount of sediment and debris come down um, Morrison Creek. And we saw a pretty dramatic inc- impact reduction in our numbers and monitoring sites, you know, between 44 and 67% declines and a rainbow trout population at those monitoring sites below Morrison Creek, where we did not see that at the tailwater monitoring site upstream of Morrison Creek. So it's a combination of several years of drought, um, the wildfire, and um, we've, there's been some construction activities down there also as well, which te- you know can tend to temporarily push fish out of the section, um, but o- overall is, you know, is a benefit to the resource. But with these significantly reduced flows 
um, the last five years and longer, um, the the releases out of the reservoir have have been dropped. You know, in the summertime, they've been the Upper Amp Water Conservancy District has cooperated with the Colorado Water Trust, and they have Water Trust has purchased water to augment flows in the river throughout the summer months to mitigate for temperature, high temperatures and low flows and to benefit the river all the way downstream past, you know, through and past Steamboat Springs. However, um, this fall, that water, that augmented water ran out and um, they, they reduced the flows by October significantly coming out of the reservoir. At that point, and we've utilized these temporary closures in the past couple of years in the springtime, we've had such low flows, we really had no runoff, no spike coming out in some of these years um, coming in into the reservoir and subsequently with the reservoir being drawn down these years um, further than it usually is, this past year it was drawn down 13 feet. So the water district is hanging on to every drop of water and with reduced flows, uh, they've been cutting back on the, the releases. Typically this time of year, we'd see 60 or 70. The median flow is 50 to 60 CFS and right now they're putting out 32. And we've seen declines in January and February. And so that's very concerning. So we've been erring on the side of con being conservative because we still have this stronghold of the, the rainbow trout at the tailwater. And we know those numbers decline below Morrison Creek, a lot of the impact from the wildfire. And so until we have flows, we know um, that come April 1st, they, they're mandated to release 40 CFS. So we know at that point, um, it to be from there into August till August 1st, we'll have at least 40 CFS. And that's, that's comforting knowing we're, we're guaranteed those flows, but we don't have that right now. And so we have maintained this closure. They started bumping them up and then they dropped them and now they're back down to 32 CFS and there's a good chance they'll be dropping them here further. So we're erring on the side of being conservative because of the importance and the fact that the densities are very high, as with a lot of tailwater resources, when you have low flows and those high densities, you know, there's increased competition among the fish for food resources, and also you can have increased hooking mortality and increased foul hooking, which can lead to inter external injuries in the fish. So it can be impactful. Angling can be more impactful when these fish are more concentrated at lower flows. Billy, we are out of time, but I think you've really uh, highlighted the importance of both this fishery and why you're taking these necessary steps to protect it. And I think we'll just wait for your word to tell us when it's open to us again. Yeah, um, Terry, and I'd like to extend a, a you know sincere thank you to all our constituents and the public. They have been very uh, cooperative and very patient with us um, while using these, these closures as management tools, not just at the tailwater, but in a lot of waters around the state. We've had great cooperation, great understanding from our anglers, our constituents, and we greatly appreciate that. All right, my friend, uh, I used to, someday i got to get up there and fish the amp with you. I know how dear yes. to your heart it is. Yes, yes, it is, and yes, you do. All right, Billy, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, Terry, thank you. That's Billy Atkinson. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to talk more fly fishing as we talk about the fly show that's going to be here in, gosh, just about a, a week or two. And we'll get all those dates and times and what you can see when you get there on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors and 104.3 The Fan. From our heated moments, there grew a tender love. 
listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, or of course, Reed's band. Of course, uh, that song, Heated Moments, is from Wickstrom and Dobra's EP that was released about uh, about, about, uh, um, about a year ago. And we've got a new single out since then. But let's get to the phones. We're running a little behind it, and I want to make sure we spend some time talking about this next subject. And joining us from the Denver, or from several fly shows, the Denver fly show in particular we're going to talk about, is uh, Ben from... from Ferimsky. I'm going to say it wrong yet, Ben. <laughs> no, you got it right there, Terry. Thanks. You know, and I almost said butch. Old habits are hard to break. <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking about uh, how to pronounce both of our names. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, well, great to have you on. You have a super event coming up here on um, the 17th, 17th through the 19th, and that's the Denver Fly Show. It's going to be out at the Gaylord with people don't know that's out towards the airport, kind of east of that Tower Road area complex. You can see it from there easily. But mm-hmm. so uh, we're just going to have a lot going on in, in fly fishing. And I think people are so glad to finally see the shows coming back to get out and interact. And, well, you're going to have a lot, a lot going on there. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, um, the Denver Fly Fishing Show has been at the the Gaylord now for, this is its second time, and uh, we've expanded it significantly this year, both in presentations and the the floor space, and I feel pretty confident that this is going to be the first time in history that the Denver Show will be the largest um, fly fishing community gathering in, in the world. And that's just amazing. And when you talk about it as a community gathering, fly fishing does create a community, doesn't it? Oh, very much so. Uh, I mean, I was just talking to somebody yesterday how um, when we're at one of those events and setting up and, you know, several days before uh, customers come in and, and everything's going on and people are just arriving, how one of our first time exhibitors last year was just, uh, you know, he just got in actually from Tanzania and he uh, went to the hotel bar and he was just kind of surprised that he's like, wait, you fly fish? Wait, so do you? So do you? And we're like, yeah, we're all here for the show. And it, and it was just immediately he felt like he was welcome because he knew that everybody standing there, he had a, a something to talk about already. Well, I need, and I look at some of the people who are going to be appearing at the fly show. Um, Gary Borger, who's been on this show, um, Pat Dorsey, who's been on this show and I have a great personal relationship with. Landon Mayer, who's he's come in the studio and helped host this show and have a great personal relationship there. Brian O'Keefe and I were at Antioch River together many, many oh, years cool. ago. <laughs> so, so I mean, there's just, I can go through the list. Kirk Bean, who's going to be doing the fly fishing Rocky Mountain National Park, has done several television shows with me. So, you know, you're right. It is a community and you get to know these people and... Uh, and a different level, having been in the outdoor industry for all the years I have, I will tell you that when I was at shows, I could interact with people like Lefty Cray or Clouser or those guys, and it was like you were long-lost buddies. They, they didn't hold themselves aloof. They just were just there to talk to people, and that's what goes on at the show, doesn't it? Oh, for sure, and all of those instructors and presenters that you just mentioned, they're in the business because they want to share the knowledge and information that they've learned over 
over their history of fly fishing. And, you know, many of them are also like Gary Borger. Um, His job was a college professor. So he's a professional presenter. And, you know, those are some of our best presenters at the show because they have that background. Um, Other ones, uh, other speakers, like you mentioned, are professional guides. So they're used to explaining the information. And those are the people that we're able to put up there um, to give a presentation. But the real benefit, like you say, is you get to know them afterwards. You have some questions. You're a little confused by something. You get to walk right up to them and talk to them and form a relationship. And, you know, just even like you said, with you, you were fishing with Brian. Many of these people you meet, and the next thing you know, you're friends, and you're going fishing together with them as well. Um so it it just creates a bond and a, a stream of information that you can't get any other way. Uh, many of them have books or videos and things like that you can watch, but the content is limited to what's in that book or what's in that uh, DVD or video. And you once you come up with a question, there's no way to really find that out or to clarify it. But when you're talking to them in person, they can just make sure you understand exactly the way you need to. Well, because we're short on time today, I want to make sure we get the information out. First of all, is there a website where people can go to find more information about the show? Yes, of course. If you just go to flyfishingshow.com, which is easy to remember, you can just click on the Denver tab and all of the information on the Denver Fly Fishing Show is there. And what's the cost to attend the show? The show is um, $18 for a one day, 28 for two days, and 38 for three days. Uh, children five and under are free, six to 12, $5, and we do offer a military discount for uh, $10 per day. Now, I know you don't control parking at the facility, but um, you have negotiated a reduced rate. Is that right? Yes, yeah. The the parking there is, is run by the Denver Parking Authority. It's not even the Gaylord Resort, but we have uh, reduced rates from the uh, regular and advertised Gaylord rates. So be sure to check our site for information on that. Um, it is open for the whole day at this price, but it's $15 per vehicle. Um, it's not per person, so you can carpool, you can take... Uh, you know, um, public transportation and avoid that. Uh, there's also lower rates depending on the amount of, amount of time you're at at the show. Um, even eight hours is only 10 bucks per vehicle. And it, the dates again are the 17th to the 19th, folks. If you're into fly fishing, you don't want to miss this. I barely touched on the names and people that will be there. You'll have authors there. You'll have presenters there. You'll have fly tires there. And, uh, People there and all the new equipment and stuff, right? I mean, if you want to find out what's new in the in the industry, this is a place to go. Oh, yeah. We even have companies that are unveiling new products at that show. So anybody there, it's going to be the first time anybody's seen it, including some of us in the industry. So, Ben, we're out of time, but hopefully people get out there. Hopefully I'll get by. We're going to try to stop by, Karen and I. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for bringing the show to Denver. Of course. You're welcome, Terry. Thank you for having me. You're right. Thank you. You're welcome. That's Ben from the Denver Fly Show. Great event. we got to take a quick time out. Then we come back. One of our favorite contributors will join us, Mr. Nate Zielinski, on Terry Wixham Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.